Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Making Dreams a Reality, Celebrating Black History Month. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 6, 2011, and in particular, the prophetic words from Isaiah chapter 58. When I finished grad school in 1985, I had exactly one job offer. So that summer, our family moved from New Jersey to Michigan, and I began a six-year stint teaching at William Tyndale College. One of the best parts about Tyndale was that 35% of our students were African Americans. While many people at Tyndale debated whether women could be ordained or even enroll in our preaching class, my black students quietly went about their preparation for ministry. Latricia, for example, pastored a storefront church that her grandmother had founded. Corletta led a megachurch and traveled the world preaching. Lee Artemis pastored a historic steeple church in inner city Detroit and even invited me to preach one Sunday. Lois still keeps in touch today, 25 years later. I will always remember my black students with gratitude as sisters and brothers who encourage me with their robust faith. One of the most counterintuitive facts of history is that blacks adopted the religion of their white oppressors, and it was a religion that was often the primary means of their oppression. Beginning in the year 1444 and lasting over 400 years, the European slave trade marketed and merchandised 40 million African people. In America, black history began in August 1619, when 20 slaves disembarked from a ship in Jamestown, Virginia, and the captain traded them for food. By 1860, the United States Census identified 4 million slaves in America. The Civil War didn't end because of Christian goodwill, observes historian Mark Knoll, but because of the armies that slaughtered 620,000 Americans. Mass death on an unprecedented and unimaginable scale. It was equal to the total American fatalities in the Revolution, the War of 1812, the Mexican War, the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, and the Korean War combined. These combatant deaths don't include civilian deaths either. And since over half of the Civil War dead were never identified, many people lost not only their lives, but even their names. A significant number of the four million slaves freed after the Civil War lived into the 1940s. During the Depression, the Federal Writers Project hired people to interview and record first-person narratives from these former slaves, for they were the, first, the last first-hand resource that could document the slave experience. Today, the Library of Congress houses 2,000 such interviews in their original dialect and broken English, and portions of which are now available on the one-hour film called Unchained Memories, Readings from the Slave Narratives, 2003. 
Unchained Memories uses original still photographs, contemporary reenactments, slave music, a running commentary by Whoopi Goldberg, and, most notably, and thus the film's title, dramatic readings of those original slave narratives by contemporary African-American actors and actresses like Oprah Winfrey. They recall the daily horrors of slave life from those who lived to tell about it. Relentless work, horrendous housing and diet, the denial of education, sexual violence, and how the masters used Christianity to keep their slaves passive. Neither the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation, nor the 13th Amendment fully abolished what Abraham Lincoln called the monstrous injustice of slavery. After all, it was the planters who were reimbursed for their losses, not the slaves. And as Isabel Wilkerson shows in her award-winning book, The Warmth of Other Sons, 2010, the years of Reconstruction gave way to a Jim Crow South that was characterized by a feudal caste system of lynchings, terror, torture, and violence. They say a picture's worth a thousand words, but no words can describe, let alone explain, the horrific crimes against humanity documented in the book Without Sanctuary, Lynching Photography in America from the year 2000. And not just hangings, by the way, but burnings, castration, mutilation, and sadistic tortures, like cutting unborn babies from their mother's wombs. This is a significant and revolting part of American history, even if high school history courses ignore it. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, writes Leon Litwick, two or three black southerners were hanged, burned at the stake, or quietly murdered every single week. In the 1890s, lynchings claimed an average of 139 lives each year, 75% of them black. The numbers declined in the following decades, but the percentage of black victims rose to 90%. Between 1882 and 1968, an estimated 4,742 blacks met their deaths at the hands of lynch mobs. And these are only the documented cases. They don't include the so-called legal lynchings of perverted justice or private posses on so-called nigger hunts. Some lynchings were done in remote areas by psychopaths, but many others were public spectacles that were advertised, described by lurid media headlines, and attended by thousands of voyeuristic spectators. They were carried out and celebrated by leading citizens, state and federal congressmen, and leaders in business and church. Our American Christians, wrote the anti-lynching activist Ida B. Wells, are too busy saving the souls of white Christians from burning in hellfire to save the lives of black ones from present burning in fires kindled by white Christians. Of course, there was no due process of law in these lynchings, nor any attempt even to hide the identity of the executioners. The U.S. Postal Service even mailed commemorative postcards with pictures of lynchings, and trains provided free services to the spectacles. When six million blacks fled the South in the Great Migration of 1915 to 1970, 
They often experience a new and virulent strain of what Isabel Wilkerson calls hyper-racism in the North and the West. That led to all sorts of difficulties and disillusionments in housing, education, health care, and employment. Not only whites, especially European immigrants, but old-time blacks resented the new arrivals. <coughs> Maybe blacks accepted the gospel because they knew their Bibles so well, especially prophetic texts like those from Isaiah 58. Whatever the reasons, Leron Bennett points out in his book Before the Mayflower that toward the end of the 19th century, the black church quickly established itself as the dominant institutional force in, a, in black American life. Martin Luther King, for example, was a churchman, and there was never a time when he was not a pastor. About himself, King once said, I am the son of a Baptist preacher, the grandson of a Baptist preacher, and the great-grandson of a Baptist preacher. The church is my life, and I have given my life to the church. Genuine change has come, of course, even if too slowly. Vermont became the first state to abolish slavery in 1777. In her book, The Breakthrough, Politics and Race in the Age of Obama, Gwen Eiffel chronicles how radical changes have redefined the roles of blacks in American politics. Today, for example, there are over 40 black mayors. There's no longer anything like a monolithic black politics in America. She devotes one chapter each to four case studies of the new generation of black politicians. Obama, Arthur Davis, a congressman from Birmingham, Cory Booker, mayor of New York, New Newark, New Jersey, and Deval Patrick, governor of Massachusetts. She then explores four themes. First of all, the complex relationship of generation change in which young black politicians must relate to their older forebears who carried the torch during the days of the civil rights movement when many of them weren't even born. Secondly, race and gender. Which group is more disadvantaged, blacks or women? And which identity helps or hurts the most in politics? Thirdly, she considers legacy politics in which a younger generation enjoys the advantages and must negotiate the disadvantages of a parent politician. For example, Jesse Jackson, Jr. And fourth, the politics of identity in which the new generation walks the tightrope of being too black for whites and or too white for blacks. A few years ago, I celebrated Black History Month by reading some primary materials on the subject. Of the many good options, I chose three slave narratives. Narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, 1845. The narrative of Sojourner Truth, 1850 and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, 1861, by Harriet Jacobs. This month, I'm enjoying Eugene Robinson's new book called Disintegration, The Splintering of Black America, 2010. And, by the way, I'm also offering a prayer of thanks for the Christian witness of my black students, who 25 years ago taught their professor a thing or two.
And for further reflection, I highly recommend the seven-part PBS documentary on the Civil Rights Movement. It's called Eyes on the Prize. Each episode is one hour long. Or secondly, consider the audio, video, or text version of Martin Luther King's 1963 speech, I Have a Dream, available at journeywithjesus.net, or go to www.americanrhetoric.com. For books this week, I review Paul Greenberg, Four Fish, The Future of the Last Wild Food. New York, The Penguin Press, 2010, 284 pages. Paul Greenberg fell in love with fishing as a youngster. As an adult, he's written a book that's not only a pleasure to read, but important to consider when it comes to the ethics of eating. He tucks us with him on his journalistic travels, from the Norwegian North Atlantic to the New Zealand Pacific, from the frigid waters of Russia and Alaska to the sweltering heat of the Mekon Delta, Israel, and Greece. Everywhere he traveled, says Greenberg, the empirical evidence is unequivocal. Increased consumer demand for fish, 170 billion pounds of wild fish every year, is putting tremendous pressure on a fragile and limited supply. Greenberg structures his book around four fish that he calls archetypes or archives of fish as food. Salmon, sea bass, cod, and tuna. But he also considers many more, like carp, hokey, pollock, tra, tilapia, swordfish, and whales. He pushes the discussion of fish beyond the binary opposition between good, wild, and fresh on the one hand, and bad, artificial, farmed on the other hand, and beyond the notion that individual consumer choice will make much difference and into the areas of ambiguities, trade-offs, and ambivalence about a complex problem. Wild fish like the bluefin tuna face serious threats of depletion and even extinction. In 1994, the federal government closed New England's Georgia's bank fishing grounds to commercial fishing. Pacific salmon face extinction in 40% of the rivers where they once thrived in the American West. And in the entire Atlantic Ocean, salmon have plummeted from a population of many millions to about 500,000. But Greenberg is not an unremitting pessimist about wild fish, and he's happy to report success stories and to give credit where it's due. Today, for example, when you think of a whale, you think animal and not food. Some depleted wild species have shown remarkable abilities to rebound and replenish. We should enjoy wild fish, but we should also know what we're doing. Farmed or domesticated fish are necessary in Greenberg's view. He's optimistic that the Vietnamese tra, T-R-A, and the African tilapia might be reasonable substitutes for our industrial cod. But domesticated fish present many challenges beyond taste and texture. Environmental constraints, the manipulation of fish DNA, escapees, 
Privatization, monopolies, industrialization, and market forces all come into play. There's also the matter of marine protein inputs and outputs. Does it really make sense to use five pounds of fish feed to produce one pound of farmed food? The production of farm-raised sea bass has been so successful that about 180 million pounds are produced a year, compared to 10 million pounds of the wild version. But this abundance has collapsed profit margins from about $10 per pound to a quarter of a cent per pound. And so, farm fish is necessary, but just as problematic as wild fish. Greenberg argues that we need both wild and farmed fish, but inherent conflicts of interest and trade-offs abound between scientists, fishermen, governments, regulatory agencies, international boundaries and treaties, lobbyists, multinational corporations, and consumers. In the last pages of his book, he thus proposes a handful of suggestions to guide the future of both wild and farmed fish. We need significant reforms in both areas, he says, because, although it's a worthy choice to stop eating sushi, the scale and complexity of the problems are far too big for that to make much of a difference for the future of fish. The author is Paul Greenberg. The title of the book, Four Fish, The Future of the Last Wild Food. For film this week, I review True Grit, 2010. True Grit is fun to watch because it's a great cowboy movie. It's full of gorgeous scenery, tough talk, parody, and pathos. Movie buffs will enjoy comparing it to the 1969 John Wayne classic and the novel of the same name by Charles Portis. But what really has the critics in overdrive is the explicitly religious character that the Coen brothers give to the story. As in their previous work, the film opens with a Bible verse. Young Matty Ross, who hires Rooster Cogburn to avenge the death of her father, is a scripture-quoting girl with pluck. Suffusing the film from start to finish is a soundtrack of the classic hymn, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. Every character in the story exhibits mixed motives and actions that are both good and, at times, evil. Leaning on the everlasting arms of the grace of God is the best we can do in a morally mysterious world in which Maddie's father helped a man who then murdered him, and in which Maddie avenges his death through vigilante justice, only to fall into a snake pit. The film is True Grit from the year 2010. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. The title, The God I Come From, To Thee I Go. The God I Come From, To Thee Go. All day long I like fountain flow from thy hand out, swayed about moat-like in thy mighty glow. What I know of thee I bless, 
as acknowledging thy stress on my being and as seeing something of thy holiness. Once I turned from thee and hid, bound on what thou hast forbid, so the wood, so the wind I would, I sinned, I repent of what I did. Bad I am, but yet thy child, Father, be thou reconciled. Spare thou me, since I see with thy might that thou art mild. I have life before me still, and thy purpose to fulfill. Yet a debt to pay thee yet. Help me, sir, and so I will. But thou bidst, and just thou art, me show mercy from my heart towards my brother, every other man my mate and counterpart. Gerard Manley Hopkins, Thee, God, I come from, to Thee I go. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 6, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.